comes from your mouth. This word, which is life, which is also a sword, uh, which is our strength and our counsel and our guide. We pray, O oh Lord, that by your word this morning you would speak to your servants. Lord, we come this morning with hearts in different places, minds on different things, life situations that vary, but you're the one God who can speak to it all. And so we, we appeal to you this morning, Lord, by your mercy, speak to us. We offer ourselves to you now, Lord. We offer not just our ears in hearing your word, but we offer our hearts in believing it, and we offer our lives to obey it. Only instruct us and give us your spirit and grant us grace, and we will persevere and bring you glory. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Not all Christians are safe. We, here in the States, enjoy tremendous comforts. But many brothers and sisters around the world suffer for being Christians. According to research from a group called Open Doors, there are 215 million Christians right now experiencing high levels of persecutions in the countries that are being monitored and tracked, the countries in which they live. This is about 1 in 12 Christians worldwide. During the World Watch List of 2018, a document that tracks persecution in the countries around the world, we learned this, that over 3,000 Christians were killed. In that same year, over 1,200 Christians were abducted. Over a thousand Christians were sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, and nearly 800 churches attacked. According to research calculations, the top 10 nations where Christians found it most dangerous and most difficult to practice their faith in 2017, here's the ranking. Number one, North Korea. For 17 years running, they've been at the top of the list. Afghanistan, followed by Somalia, number four, Sudan, number five, Pakistan, number six, Eritrea, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran. These statistics have names, have families, have stories. Most of them we don't know, but some come to our attention like Pastor Andrew Brunson, a native of North Carolina who for 23 years has been pastoring a gospel-preaching church in Turkey. He was arrested in October 2016 following a, a failed coup attempt in Turkey. The authorities charged Brunson with being a spy and with cooperating with those who had attempted to overthrow the government. They detained him in the jail Recently, under house arrest, not because he was truly a spy, but because he's a Christian, a gospel-preaching missionary pastor in that land. One of the striking things about Christians who suffer persecution, whether in an underground church or whether like individuals like Pastor Brunson, is they often suffer greatly 
but with joy. There's this inexplicable sort of rising of gladness. It's not unlike we see in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles were, were beaten for Jesus' name and, 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 and told not to preach in that name anymore, but they went away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. That same gladness that rises from the ashes of persecution is known by Christians right now around the world who likewise suffer for the name of Christ. I'm sure they feel a lot of other things too. But joy is what we want to think about this morning. And you can clap for joy and for Jesus. Here's a question. What gives an imprisoned, imprisoned missionary pastor joy while he's in prison? And here's the short answer. It's the ability to see his passions, the things around which he organizes his life, the, the central ideas and persons that, that guide him. It's the ability to see his passions fulfilled through his or her suffering. It's easy to forget that most of the Bible that we have, most of the New Testament that we have, comes from a missionary church planter who is often himself persecuted and in jail. That's the context of Philippians. Paul is in jail, we believe, in Rome. He's writing to the church in Philippi. He's writing in part to update him on his imprisonment. But what comes through the letter over and over and over again is Paul's ability to see that his passion is being advanced and that gives him joy despite his circumstance. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to hang our thoughts on two things. Paul has joy in prison because, number one, the gospel advances, verses 12 to 14, and number two, Jesus is preached, verses 15 to 18. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul rejoices, verses 12 to 14, because the gospel advances. He's writing to the Philippians who are some of his major supporters in the work of gospel mission and spreading the good news. As I said before, he's in a Roman prison, which is no good place at all. So it's natural that the Philippians might be concerned for his welfare, and Paul wants to assure them that he's okay. 
And when he writes here, he writes them with a a sort of understanding of his situation that is distinctively Christian. Now, anything we call a distinctively Christian perspective has to recognize this, that God is in control of all things. So we call a doctrine of providence. In our statement of faith, we put it this way, the Second London Baptist Confession, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That's a long but sweet way of saying God does all things well. He's in control of all things. And all the things that happen, happen to serve the purposes God has for them. And so Paul understands that about his own imprisonment. So he he says, now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. Notice the the passive uh, form of speech there. This is not something that Paul has done to himself. This is not something that Paul has chosen. This is something that has happened to Paul. He'd rather be free. He'd rather be preaching the gospel. But the circumstance has, has come upon him. But Paul doesn't think it's out of control. Beloved, things are never out of control. God is always in control. And that's what allows us to see in part through the circumstance to see things that are really happening. Paul thinks this way often about himself. Remember what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, where he's talking about so many instances of his suffering. He, he, he goes through the suffering in order to, to see something. Notice what he says, 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Notice. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You see how Paul reasons through his suffering? He is, he's honest, number one, about his suffering. In, in, in 2 Corinthians 1, he calls it affliction. He was utterly burdened beyond what he thought he could bear. He, he despaired even of life. He didn't want to go on living anymore. But God was in control. And God was teaching him something. In the context of 2 Corinthians, he was teaching Paul not to rely on himself, but to rely on God. And he was helping Paul face death with this knowledge, the practical sort of application of the resurrection. God raises the dead. Even death doesn't have the last word. God does. And so it was God's providence that helped Paul to understand his circumstance 
And what he understood in Philippians 1 is that by God's providence, his control of all things, he was in prison, and that was not the end. He was in prison for the advancement of the gospel. That God allowed that situation that the gospel might go forth. Verse 12, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That little word there really is a, is a clue to us, isn't it? it? It teaches us that our perception is not always reality. Things look one way, but in God's hands and God's working, they can be really quite different. So we can't ever just stop with what we see. We have to see past what we see until we see the hand of God and the working of God. What really was happening, what actually was happening, was gospel growth. In fact, notice how, Paul's word, how Paul words it here. He's saying his imprisonment served the gospel. His, imprim- his imprisonment was an employee. It worked for someone else. It worked for the good news. It served the gospel, and that's the result of God's providence. So here's the important thing to learn about God. God does some of his best work when his people seem like they're in their worst situations. God does some of his best work when his people seem like they are in their worst situations. Remember the reading that we did earlier, Joseph and his brothers. Joseph sold into slavery, goes to Potiphar's house, goes to prison, has dreams. He's in his worst situation. And what happens? God raises him from the prison, makes him number two in Egypt, and uses Joseph to save the entire nation. Or or think of, of generations later when Israel is finally being set free from slavery and they're fleeing from Egypt and they they run all the way to the Red Sea. No way to cross. Pharaoh's hot on their heels with his chariots and his army. And God parts the sea and his people walk through it. Or the Hebrew boys thrown in that furnace, stoked hot. And, and the king is made to see that there was someone else in there with Shadrach, Meshach, and that bad Negro. It was Jesus. Let's see if you're paying attention. <laughs> And they come out unscathed. Beloved, you need, we need to know this. We, we need to be able to see our realities. We need to be able to see our lives uh, through the, the, the truth of God's providence. Good theology is meant to help us understand our lives. And, and what we're meant to understand is all the stuff that's happening, that ain't it. God is working some things out. And he often does his best work in our lives when we are in our worst situations of our lives. And that's what's happening with Paul right here. He's in prison, but God's at work. And our joy often depends upon our ability to see God at work, to know that he's at work. And that's not just sort of fantasy. Notice the evidence that Paul gives for taking this perspective. He sees at least three things. Number one, he sees that the gospel is reaching the highest places in society. So you see there he says, so it has become known to the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. The imperial guard or the praetorium, that was the elite royal guard of Caesar or of a governor of an area. They protected the emperor. 
There there were 9,000 in the whole guard, 9,000 soldiers, and they were so powerful that they not only protected Caesar, but at different points in history, they would remove the emperors and place another one into power. Paul says, listen, my imprisonment has worked out in such a way that even the elites of the society, the praetorium and all the rest, maybe referring to Caesar's household, have come to know this gospel. It is advanced from a little watering hole like Nazareth all the way to Rome and Caesar's household. But notice something else that he sees. He sees that his imprisonment strengthens his his witness. The fact that he is in prison, notice there, for Christ. Paul's not a common criminal. He's not there because of any wrongdoing that he has done. He's not even put there by Caesar, ultimately. He is in prison prison for one reason. Paul is in prison because he believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who gave himself for the sins of the world and that this same Jesus is resurrected and is Lord of lords. It is for Christ that Paul is in prison. And the whole guard knows it. And everyone else. And you know how that goes, right? Guards switch, switch shifts. They come in all their Roman regalia. They stand post by Paul's cell. Paul comes up to the bars. Paul's like, yo, man, I don't think I met you before. I'm Paul. They used to call me Saul, but I'm Paul. Yeah, man. I was going to Damascus. Got knocked off my horse blind. And the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven started speaking to me. And let me tell you what I'm in here for. I mean, everybody who came to the jail got the gospel, right? So before long, it was known throughout the whole, the whole sort of imperial guard that this man really believes in this Jesus. His witness is strengthened by his imprisonment. And his remaining resolute in his faith, even though in prison, strengthened his witness. And notice the third thing that happens as a result of that. The other brothers, verse 14, are emboldened. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord through my imprisonment, are much more bold to preach the truth without fear. And beloved, God has often been pleased to use the suffering of his saints for the sake of the gospel to strengthen other Christians and embolden the church. 1555. Oxford in England, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, reformers recovering the gospel, preaching against the errors of Roman Catholicism, are burned at the stake. While they're there being burned, about to be burned, Latimer looked to his good friend Ridley and said this, be of good courage, Master Ridley, play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. Or I'm reminded of my two friends from Iran, husband and wife. I first met them in a trip to the Middle East. Let's call them Y and N. They were leaders in the underground church in Iran. And when I met them, they were perhaps a year after imprisonment in Iran. And they told me the story of how the authorities arrested them at the airport, leaving the country, had been tracking them for some time, and had imprisoned them and separated them to interrogate them, and made various threats. 
of what they would do to the other, to the spouse, if they didn't cooperate. They wanted them to renounce faith in Jesus and wanted them to name the other leaders of the house churches and to name other Christians who were there in Iran worshiping Christ. And I I wept as they told me the story of both the fear that sort of welled up in their heart as they thought about their spouse, but also this confident knowledge that there was no way in the world that their spouse was going to reject Jesus and turn on the church. And so the knowledge that the other spouse was going to be faithful kept each of them as they endured their suffering in that imprisonment. That's what's happening today in the persecuted church around the world, and that's what's happening here in Paul in this text. He suffered for Christ gladly and in prison, and those who knew him and loved him were made more bold to preach the gospel without fear. Advancing the gospel, strengthened witness, emboldened church. That's what Paul sees when he thinks about his imprisonment. What do you see when you think about your suffering? When you think about your hardship, the negative situations that you may find yourself in, what facts do you record and rehearse when life is hard? Is it the facts or details of your condition or the facts and details of your passion? Notice what Paul records. I mean, he mentions his imprisonment. He gives us that context. We know that that's important to him because he mentions it several times. But the details he gives us are all about the gospel. It's all about what God is doing with the good news of Jesus Christ. What he studies is evidence of God's providence and God's gospel. So let me give us five or six applications. All right. Sermon only has two points, Peter, with 27 subpoints. All right. Application number one. Maybe do this this afternoon or in your quiet time tomorrow. Choose a situation in which you're suffering, particularly because of the gospel. Write down any and all evidences of the gospel's advance. Note any ways that your pain actually produces the gospel's progress. Make that, the gospel's progress, the fuel for your joy. Meditate on it. Now, if the gospel is not your passion, then it will not excite your joy. But if the gospel is the reason for for, for living, then, then it will be an amazing source of joy, even in the pit of jail. So choose your situation. Maybe in the last couple of weeks, we have seen a lot of violence, a lot of shooting in our neighborhood, some of it as close as uh, our brother Dave Johnson's doorstep and uh, right around the corner from other people's homes. That's, that's unsettling. That's scary. But why are we in the community? We're here for the gospel. We're here for Jesus. We're here to see that neighbors know the only Savior in the universe who can rescue them from sin and give them a life beyond a shooting. Right? And if those situations 
make the gospel more clear and give us more opportunity to preach the gospel, then, then that should be for us, even though we, we, we face the suffering, that should be for us a source of joy. So think about your situation. Is it for the gospel? And how is the gospel advancing in that time? A second thing. So let us learn then to celebrate gospel progress wherever it occurs. Right? So Paul sees that others grow in boldness. Verse 14. Paul can't preach anymore or for a time being is in prison. But the fact that others are more bold to preach the gospel without fear, well, that excites Paul. And, and Paul's excitement about that reminds us not to get so wrapped up in whether we advance the gospel, but that the gospel was advanced. And Christianity is a team sport, right? If it only counts because we were the ones who did it, then, then actually we are proud and self-centered. Our own fame is our passion, not the gospel. But Paul sees it in the hands of his, his brothers and sisters and he rejoices. So let's learn to celebrate the gospel progress wherever we see it. We, we pray not only for ourselves, but we pray for other churches in the neighborhood because they're on team Jesus like us. And if the gospel advances in the church down the street, we're going to rejoice with them because we're on the same team. Number three, let us trust God's providence. Life can be hard. I mean, sometimes really hard. Paul had situations in his life where he despaired of life. Thought he had the sentence of death written in his heart. But life gets hard. We have to remember that nothing comes into our life that doesn't first go through God's hands. The doctrine of providence. He's ruling all things. And when we remember that, I think it's helpful to remember how Spurgeon puts this. He says, God is too good to be unkind. And he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. The God we serve is good. And he's wise. He's not going to make any mistakes. Even the suffering that we endure, that, that's not something that happened because God turned around for a second and took his eye off us. And sometimes when life is hard and we can't figure out what God is doing, we have to fall back on the knowledge that God is good and trust his heart, especially when it's hard. A fourth application. Let's pray less for our situation to change and more for the gospel to grow. Recently, I read this observation about Paul's prayers from Tim Keller. He says, it's remarkable that in all his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. It's not circumstances which ultimately capture the apostle's attention, and it's not circumstances which ultimately determine his joy. Circumstances matter, and Paul mentions them. But what really captures his attention and what really brings him joy is the growth of the gospel and the growth of Christian virtue. Now, we tend to pray most often, let me not say we, let me say me, because y'all holier than me, right? So, so I tend to pray most often for my situations to change, more often for that, than for the gospel to grow. Right? But Paul has it the other way. He prays for and notices more often the growth of the gospel 
And it sees how God uses his situation to advance that. So we should flip it. Pray more for the advance of the good news, for people to be saved, for circumstances that lead to that, then we pray for our comfort and our circumstances. Number five, pray that jailed and persecuted missionaries have grace to see the gospel advance through their imprisonment and persecution. This is a real world, right now, modern day issue. Pray for their joy in jail. Pray for their strength in witnessing. Next Sunday afternoon, Lord willing, a group will gather to pray for the persecuted church around the world. Consider joining them. They've been faithfully doing that for, for many weeks and months now. Join them for that time of prayer or, or make it a regular part of your personal prayer life to be praying for the persecuted church. They need the help of our prayers today just as Paul needed the help of the Philippians in his day. Paul rejoices while in jail because his imprisonment served to advance one of his passions the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now, that's the second reason that Paul rejoices in jail. He rejoices in jail because, frankly, Jesus is preached more. See that in verses 15 to 18. Notice there what Paul writes. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. It's a challenging and surprising paragraph, isn't it? I notice there are two different kinds of preachers in this text. There are two groups. Verse 14 says they are all brothers, so they're all Christians. But notice in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ out of envy, envy and rivalry. These are the jealous competitive preachers. Also in verse 15, there are those who do it, who preach Christ out of goodwill, the, the goodwill preachers. I notice that they have two different, very different motivations. The, the jealous competitive preachers, they, they preached out of verse 17, selfish ambition. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be first. Perhaps they dislike the fact that Paul has, has a reputation for standing for Christ and, and that reputation is spread even into the imperial guard and Caesar's household. And perhaps they were the ones who wanted the applause of men. It's selfish ambition that drives them. Also notice the, the jealous competitive preachers are and they're not sincere in their motives, right? It's interesting. They want to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. They preach Christ in order to hurt Paul. We don't know what kind of affliction this would be, but isn't that a strange motivation for preaching Jesus? And notice how different their motivation is from the goodwill preachers. Paul says that the goodwill preachers preach Christ, verse 16, out of love. They love Jesus. They love the gospel. They love the apostle Paul. They know Paul is in prison for the defense of the gospel, so they want to help the apostle, not hurt him. They want to join together with this missionary church planter in a way that relieves his affliction rather than compounds it. Now here's the interesting thing. Two different groups of preachers, two different motivations, preaching one Christ. That's what they have in common. They preach the same Jesus. Now, 
God can play a beautiful symphony with broken instruments. So we should let that be an encouragement to us. While we should never be okay with bad motives like those of the jealous competitive preachers, we should nevertheless understand that you and I are people that God can and will use despite our weaknesses. There's encouragement in this text for us. And Paul roots his joy in this singular fact, that they each, whatever their motivations, are preaching Christ. That's why he comes down to verse 18 and says, bottom line, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in that I rejoice. He doesn't rejoice ultimately in their motivations. He rejoices ultimately in their message, that Christ is preached, and in that he rejoices. Now, I don't know about y'all, but this challenges me, because I'm quicker to anger than joy. If I think somebody's jacked up, right? I know y'all are too because I, I read some of your Facebook pages and stuff. <laughs> but we have to think carefully about this, right? How can Paul rejoice in Christ being preached when some of the ones who preach Christ do so out of envy, envy rivalry, selfish ambition, and insincerity. So let's think about this. We need to understand what Paul is and is not saying. There are two keys to this, I think. The first key is this, what Paul means by preach Christ. He doesn't just simply mean that people use Jesus' name. He doesn't mean that they are vaguely and generally Christian. Paul means, I think, something more particular. He means they get the gospel correct and they get Jesus correct. That they preach correctly that Jesus is Lord. That he is God's unique son who came into the world in human likeness, being fully God and fully man. Who lived his earth, earthly life in perfect obedience to God. Was completely righteous. And who at the end of that life, at about 33 years of age, gave that life on the cross to atone for our sins, the sins of the whole world. He literally died suffering God's judgment in our place. And he was buried for three days. And three days later, God raised him from the grave in full resurrection power. And when God raised him from the grave, this same resurrection was evidence that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our place. And that he's ascended into heaven and he's coming again to gather his bride. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this message is of first importance. So it seems to me that when he says they preach Christ, they preach this first important message correctly. They got the gospel right. And in that, Paul rejoiced. But there's a second thing here that I think is key to his, his, his reaction. Notice now, some people preach to personally spite Paul. Right? So their motivation was thinking to afflict him. It's meant to be an insult to the apostle. Now here's the thing about Paul. He didn't care much about himself or his advantage or his reputation. He cared that people heard the truth about Jesus. So when people get the gospel correct, even if Paul knows that their motives are bad 
or that they're looking to insult or attack him personally, he's not phased by that because the gospel is more important than his reputation. The gospel is more important than what they think about him. And so the gospel was going forward. It was accurate. They were preaching the true Christ, whatever their motivations. And Paul rooted his joy in the truth about Jesus. Remember how the logic of this passage works. Paul says, my loss in the form of imprisonment and jealous preachers is for Christ's cross. It's for the advance of the gospel. Therefore, I rejoice. That's gain. I rejoice. Now, we shouldn't confuse these Philippian preachers with other kinds of preachers that the Bible talks about. Right? So we might think of this in a grid of four squares. On the left column, you've got sort of a, a, a road that's defined by good motives and a road defined by bad motives. And then you've got two columns, one defined by a true Christ and another by a false Christ. So when you get people preaching a true Christ and a true gospel out of good motives, those are the goodwill preachers. Those are preachers you want to sit under. Their message is right and their heart is right. That's what we want. And that's what we see Paul rejoicing in Philippians 1.18. Our our response ought to be to rejoice in that. Now, when you get people preaching a a true Christ with with a bad motive of the kind that we see in Philippians, sort of personal competitive vendetta, those are the jealous preachers. And this text is teaching us to rejoice, not because their motives are are, are what they are, but to rejoice because Christ is preached, right? That's the response there. Now, moving to the other column, you've got people who preach a false Christ or in some way don't fully understand the gospel, but they do it out of a good motive. We see an example of that in the history of the church in Acts chapter 18, where Priscilla and Aquila hear a mighty preacher named Apollos. And Apollos is preaching that Jesus is the Christ But the text says that there are some things that he doesn't quite understand. And the response there is not to condemn Apollos, whose heart is right, but message is a little bit off. The response of Priscilla and Aquila is to pull him aside and explain the way of truth more perfectly. That category of people you explain to. And then there's a fourth category. Preach a false Christ out of a bad motive. This is what the Bible refers to as false teachers. Through and through. It's a different Jesus than the one of the Bible. It's a different gospel than the one Paul preached. And in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. All right? So what we don't want to do in Philippians 1.18 is lump all of these sort of teachers together and say, it don't even really matter. Let's rejoice. No, that's sloppy thinking. It's not what the Bible teaches. And let's unpack that fourth category, the false teachers, a a little bit more. And I'm doing this in part because we live in a sort of internet age and a culture among Christians where these labels are thrown around just just, just indiscriminately. Everybody's a heretic if you live long enough. You know, you read enough blogs, everybody is teaching falsely, right? So now let's unpack this category of false teachers just a little bit. I want to give you four kinds. There are others in in the New Testament. Let me give you four kinds of false teachers in the New Testament. Number one, those who are under demonic influence. You remember we, a couple weeks ago we talked about how the gospel came to Philippi, and we did a sermon in Acts chapter 16, 
And you remember when Paul and the guys came to Philippi, there was a young slave girl who was possessed by a demon, and she was following them saying, these men proclaim to you uh, the way of salvation. Listen to them. But Paul got vexed and turned and rebuked her and cast out the demon. We never want the gospel associated with demonic influence. We don't want the gospel confused with the ungodly and the unholy. So, so in, no, in that case, too, we're in this category of false teaching. We reject that, right? Another category would be those who are literally preaching false gospels. Again, consider Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Already made mention of that, but Paul says, if anyone comes to you preaching any gospel other than the one you heard from us, let them be accursed. I say again, let them be accursed. Or greedy preachers. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Titus chapter 1, verse 11, Paul lists there in the qualifications for pastors that they not be greedy for gain, that they not be greedy for money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, he addresses that in the congregation too, that the congregation is not to put their hope in riches. And Peter and Jude both tell us that this is a motivation of false teachers. This is, this is the biblical origin of the prosperity gospel, and it is to be rejected. That's false teaching. Fourth category, abusive leaders. Abusive leaders. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 and 28. Jesus says there, I'm paraphrasing, that your leaders shall not lord it over you. That's what the Gentiles do. But Jesus says there, anybody who's going to be first among you, anybody who's going to be a leader among you, must be servant of you all. The gospel... And the ministry is not a platform for autocrats, dictators, tyrants, and people who would use power and privilege for their own sort of pleasure. That is to be rejected. Flee such leadership. Those are not the things that Paul rejoices in. Paul rejoices in true brothers getting the gospel right, even if in some way they're looking to spite him. So it's not any motive that is okay as long as the gospel is preached. Taking that view would contradict all these other passages. What we most want is the gospel preached with a true heart. So let's bring this to a close with six more applications. Seven. Seven applications. Number one, preach Jesus. That's the burden of this passage preach Christ. You know, Paul's like, look, I'm in prison. Y'all preach. <laughs> I, I rejoice when you preach. Let the good news flow. Don't put it in a box. Don't hide it. Don't sit on it. Don't, don't just save it for later. Give it out. Let it go. Spread the seed in a, in a sort of prolific way. Let the gospel reign on the heads of the nations. And that's why we are a church. That's why you are a Christian in part. God has saved you. He's loved you and brought you to himself in order that he might use you to make him known among all the peoples of the earth. And so the most fundamental application for every Christian in this church, every Christian in this room, is we should leave here committed to, in some way, being more bold without fear to make Jesus known. And if you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, this is why we're glad you're with us. So you can hear this wonderful news about God's love for you, 
a love that he proved in his son. I mean, proved it by crucifying his son to pay for your sins, to take your place. So you would not have to go to hell, but that you would be saved to go to heaven and to enjoy his love forevermore. But you can't do that rejecting the only way that God has prepared for you to be forgiven. And the only way that God has prepared for you to be righteous in his sight, and that is the crucifixion of his son. So if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, put your faith in Jesus. Confess your sin to God even now. He already knows it about you. It's no secret. Confess it. Admit it. Agree with him that you're a sinner. And agree with him that you need a savior, that you need to be rescued from hell. You need to be rescued from his judgment. And put your faith in Jesus as the only one who can rescue you. And you will be saved. And your life will be new. And even if you suffer for the name of Christ, God will give you joy. Trust in Jesus and follow him. And saints, let's preach Jesus. Number two, be careful, saints. Be sure that the person we call an enemy of the gospel really is an enemy of the gospel. Don't throw that kind of phrase around carelessly. Instead, look to see whether Christ is truly preached. And if Jesus is preached, rejoice. Regard the person as a brother or sister as Paul does here. Number three, be careful not to confuse an insult directed at you with gospel unfaithfulness in the other. It may be that we are offended by someone else's ministry or life because they think differently from us, but not in some point of the gospel. And they may even mean to afflict us or may be jealous of us, but but that's not the same as falsifying the gospel. So we have to learn to shrug off, attack against us, and celebrate the gospel going for. Number four, don't confuse your personal attacks with defending the gospel. A personal attack against someone else is exactly that, a personal attack. And it's sin. It's beneath the Christian. Defending the gospel is in fact a Christian duty. But defending the gospel is a contest of ideas, of argumentation, not personal insult and name calling. Number five, do not weaponize the phrase the gospel to serve a tribal or a partisan cause. Use the phrase the gospel sparingly and only when you're really talking about issues dealing with Jesus's deity, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and second coming. Far too many people talk about things being gospel issues that are not gospel issues. And they do that as a way of shutting down legitimate disagreement between Christians and healthy conversation between Christians. These are Christians that only have two categories. You agree with me or you're not faithful. Well, beloved, there are a lot more categories than that in the world. And charity causes us to be nuanced in our categorization, that we might be accurate in our depiction of other people, protecting their reputation and focusing on things properly. Do not confuse 
the gospel with tribal or partisan causes. Number six, don't be so eager to denounce false teachers that you fail to celebrate the true Jesus. Number seven, learn to rejoice. Just putting it positively now. Learn to rejoice over every preacher and every instance when the true Jesus of the Bible is proclaimed. We must link our joy, as Paul does here, with the accurate proclamation of Jesus, no matter our personal circumstance and no matter who the gospel is coming from. That's a secret to your happiness in this conflicted and contentious Christian world. Link your joy to the going forth of the gospel. So let's conclude. Are we the kind of Christians who can say, as long as the gospel advances and the true Jesus is preached, I rejoice no matter what happens to me. If not, then we've got to get the gospel and Jesus down more central to our life as a passion that governs and drives our life. If yes, then we will find that we will always have reason to rejoice because God will always advance the gospel and Christ will be preached to the glory of the Father's name. Let's pray together. Father, we wish to remember now our brothers and sisters, true brothers and sisters, persecuted, jailed, abused, and too often forgotten. We pray, O Lord, for your church. Strengthen those who suffer for your name. Make their witness pure. And grant them the joy of seeing the gospel advance even through their suffering. We pray, O Lord, that if it pleases you to allow persecution, that it would also please you to raise up a million more Ridleys and Latimers who play the man and take confidence in the advance of the gospel. And Lord, we pray for ourselves. We pray that you would help us to read our lives and to read history with a deep understanding of your providence, knowing that you are in control of all things, that nothing has come into our lives that didn't first come through your hands, and nothing has come into our lives that is not designed to work for us in exceeding weight of glory, that is not designed to bring you honor and praise through our lives. Nothing comes into our life that's not designed to conform us to Christ. And nothing has come into our lives that is not also an opportunity to advance the gospel. Help us to read our lives, to read our experiences in light of your providence and in light of your agenda to advance the gospel. If you help us to do that, will have serious joy in the hardest of times. Grant us this grace, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.